0: It's kind of a uh, tough scripture reading to open with the coming of the lawless one, one that we uh, save for particular times, usually not on Sabbath morning, it's usually about three quarters of the way through the Revelation seminar, you know, and that uh, it isn't that safe a subject for Sabbath morning. That's why I wanted to read to the very end of the chapter, and I can't help but understand and know that as we go on in our study in Revelation 13, and we begin to look at this second beast that rises up, that that's this uh, description. This is the way that it's described in 2 Thessalonians, the coming of the lawless one. And notice that it begins by saying, the working of Satan in all power, signs and lying wonders. First beast was pretty effective in just using the power and just using the force, the fear, the coercion, which by the way, is exactly the opposite of what the church of the lamb that was slain is used upon. You go from uh, supposed being martyrs and being raised, if you will, to be martyrs. And then all of a sudden the church comes along and says, you don't have to. Might makes right on this planet. And so the first beast uses that power, but it begins to backfire, I think, that the more, the more times, the more martyrs you get. I told you before, I've used this example is the, the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists were being persecuted by both Protestant and Catholic uh, persecutors. And they were being pounded and being martyred right and left. But pretty soon it began to backfire because as they were martyring the Anabaptists, they would notice that the way that they would martyr them would, they would row them out into the middle of the lake and they would uh, put them in a sack, in a weighted sack, and throw them in the water, saying, if you want to be rebaptized, we'll rebaptize you. But the thing was, was that in the time, in the interim that they took them from the shore and out there, the people, even inside the sack, they would preach. They would preach and they would sing. And by the time the persecutors had rode back after they martyred one, there'd be five more in the water being baptized. So pretty soon the force and the fear and the coercion begins to backfire on the beast. So the second beast needs to come along. Now he's gonna use the same power and that's what we're gonna look at today. He's gonna use the same power. But in this particular case, he's also going to bring in certain types of deception that will ease back on the message and hopefully be able to continue, uh, for the beast, hopefully be able to continue. But the reason that I had Grady read all the way to the end and for us to sing until then is that it doesn't matter, truly, it doesn't matter as far as Christ is concerned what the lawless one accomplishes. It doesn't matter how many of us fall for the deception and for a time worship the beast. Christ remains in the church. Christ remains present. He remains walking and talking with us. So even in the midst of Paul talking and warning the Thessalonians about the coming of the lawless one, he says, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and through grace give us comfort and eternal good hope. Even in the midst where, where it seems that, the, that the, even the second beast begins his reign, we're to comfort each other with the love of Christ. Because John clearly shows us back in, 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 uh, in the seven churches, in the seven seals, the seven churches, the, the, the vision begins with Christ walking amongst all seven churches, and which, by the way, the seventh church is the one persecuted the most uh, by this beast, and in fact, has given into the persecution to where the, the, the last church is not even worshiping either one anymore. They're rich and have need of nothing. They're the lukewarm church, and they've locked Christ outside. That's how much they have bought into whatever this second beast has in store for them. In the seven seals, Jesus is seen on a white horse and the very opening of the vision, it says, and the, white, and the one on the white horse, Christ himself, will go through this era all the way to his second coming, continuing to ride among and to conquer and to conquer until there's no more to conquer. So just remember that no matter where we go and how dark this might become as we look at the work of this beast amongst us, nothing drives the presence of Jesus away. Amen. All we have to do is open the door, Laodicea. That's what's, I, I guess that, that for some, for quite some time that eluded me, that really eluded me, that I, I have, uh, Pounded and, and, and lectured and you and, and, and uh, uh, tried to confess that Laodicea is us, that's us, we've locked Jesus outside the door. If we could just get to where we could even confess that we truly have locked Jesus outside the door, but, but then it, it, it eluded me to realize that he's still there. That's, to me, that's, that's the message of Laodicea is that even when the church tries to lock him out, he'll stand out there and he'll knock. All we have to do is open the door. So this lawless one, we're going to begin our study of this second beast. I think we've exposed, if you will. How many here need a little bit more exposure of the first beast? We've been talking about him for quite a few weeks. As a matter of fact, we've been talking about him for about a thousand years, haven't we? I think we've exposed him enough, right? Right? And I hope that we learned what we should learn even uh, newer than that, that again, we're not looking at a particular church, at a particular people, we're looking at a power, a religious power that is both Protestant and Catholic that seems to uh, be completely enamored and not be able to exist without seeking worldly power municipal power, military power, political power, civic authority, they just can't seem to let go of it. This is what makes it so attractive. And then we'll come to, um, I guess, a new phase, a new application of the power. That's what the second beast is. It's not a completely different one, but it also is unique in that the dragon seems to be able to reapply the use of this power in a different era and with what what I like to call with a different coat of paint, if you will. I think I shared with you before, in fact, I know I have. I didn't think that I uh, was privileged to co-lead a Reformation tour back in 2012 or 13. And um, it it, it was three of us that were leading. There was our senior pastor and then also um, our, our religious, our longtime religious liberty director who happens to, he, he worked as an archivist and his history was reformation history. So he really prepped our group before we went on this tour. And the very last part of the tour was to take us from the reformers in, in from Switzerland to Germany. Uh, to to here to Italy and then end it in Rome. Before we went to Rome, we spent the weekend here, our very last weekend, in one of the Waldensian valleys in northern Italy. Pelletze is where this is. There's not one Waldensian valley. Remember, the Waldensians were all over the place. So wherever they settled, they would call those valleys. But this is one particular one. This is one particular one, and. I, I think I shared with you that that we were there. We got there on Friday. Uh, I actually we we got to worship in one of the Waldensian, uh, like a a uh, uh, a church that was at, at least at least 700 years old. You know, we got and uh, was privileged to be able to worship and preach in there. But what we noticed when we got up on Sabbath morning, see, you're you're inside, you're in this valley, and you know, looking up at those. And what got me was was that. Uh, you know, I I was born and raised here. You know, so so in a lot of ways, I really don't know what a mountain looks like. You know what I mean? You know, I mean, I lived uh, and, and we call where I was from, we called those mountains down in Sierra Vista, the Huachuca Mountains. We call them the Huachuca Mountains, uh, not compared to the Alps. My goodness. That's what killed us about this. Was we're sitting in this valley and we look up at, at these the tallest mountains I've ever seen and, and what happened was, what happened was on Sabbath morning, you, you, you get up and, the, and the, uh, the fog or the mist, may, you might be looking at this hill right here, the fog or the mist and you're looking and you go, well that's the tallest mountain I've ever seen. And then as the day went by and it began to clear, it would get even higher and higher until finally when it was completely clear and I swear I'm looking at Everest. And, and it's so much that I went looking for pictures, none of my pictures could capture that. And I, I went looking on, on, on the web, I went looking for, through Google, this is about the only one that I could see that I could capture, and it really doesn't quite capture how you feel sitting down in that valley, completely surrounded you know, by these huge mountains. All I know is this, is that, I'll try to capture this for you, is that by Sabbath afternoon, we had hiked we had hiked up a, a, along in this ridge here, and we had found one of the caves that the Waldensians worshiped in while they were being persecuted by this first beast. And we had Sabbath afternoon worship in that very cave right there. So even out in that valley, the, those hills, those, the Alps weren't even enough to protect the woman from the dragon's persecution. They found him even there and drove him into that cave. So when we discussed the beast from the sea as we have, if every detail and fulfillment had to do with nations and governments, from Babylon all the way to Rome, in in talking about this human power that the church prostitutes herself with, that the church gets in bed with, Remember, in Revelation 17, she's pictured, the woman is pictured as riding on the back of the beast. She's in complete control. She goes into the wilderness, the church. She comes out of the wilderness, the harlot of Babylon, because she's embraced this power, this first beast. And I think what I, where I wanted to leave it last week is we were still looking at it from the view of the church. The dragon and that first beast nearly did the job. When there's no corner in which you could hide. And by the way, the Waldensians were found here also. One of the last Crusades, in fact, one of the last Crusades that that spanned that era, that 300 year era that that I talked about of, of the beast actually being both Catholic and Protestant. Imperial Protestants who embraced. There was a crusade that nearly wiped out the Waldensians, the Huguenots, all of them. And the the dragon found them in places like this. There was no room left in the old world. Absolutely no religious room left. So, as I pointed out, if after 246 years, of arguably being the most influential and powerful nation on earth. Don't you think that maybe the United States, especially in our time in history and where we are now and who we are, that the United States might get maybe one or two mentions in this prophecy? And we do know that that's where we're at, right? The beast rising out of the land directly involves who? It directly involves us, North America as Americans, the United States of America, the founding where we were, it all comes up here. And that's what we need to spend a lot of time, at least as much time as we spent picking on that other beast, right? Except it's harder to do, isn't it? It's harder to do. I've never been in a Revelation seminar that spent as much time talking about that second beast as it did talking about the first one, never. Have you? No. In a Revelation seminar, like I said, there'll be three or four studies all talking about that other one and talking about the mark and everything else. This beast gets one mention, maybe, and we're not worried about her until uh, one day she makes us worship on another day. But I think the prophecy will show us. I think the language of a Revelation 13. And the language of the churches, the churches that we have left from Philadelphia to allowed to see it. I think shows that there's a lot more to worry about right now before there's ever some sort of law that's gonna force us to worship on a day we don't wanna worship on. So we begin our study of the beast from the land. So in doing so, we're gonna leave the churches. We'll go back to them. We're gonna leave the view of the church and we gotta go back to the beach. You all ready to go back to the beach? So we're headed back to the beach where the dragon stands and the first beast has come up and has done her job. And then all of a sudden uh, we turn and we see another one. We see a second one. So as with the first beast, this passage begins with the identification and then the actions of the beast during the end time. The identification is shorter. He has a shorter description, or she. They have a shorter description. And I'm immediately struck at how different this beast is, how unique this beast is amongst all the beasts of the Bible in Revelation and in Daniel. It's a complete different appearance. I saw another beast that rose out of the earth. It had two horns. As compared to the first one, it had what? It had seven heads with ten horns. This one, one head and only two horns. Like a lamb, first beast, did it look anything like the lamb? No, in fact, John went out of his way to tell you that the first beast looked exactly like the dragon, right? He wasn't pretending, was he? There was no pretense, he was not pretending to be anything or anyone else than the dragon. He looks exactly like the dragon. Except, remember, except, remember the one thing that set him apart was his body. Remember, his his body wasn't all red dragon body. It was leopard, bear, and and others. In other words, the, the dragon was manifested in the human power of all the world powers that had led up to that. It looks exactly like the dragon in human form. This one, though, this one has a disguise. Disguised as a what? As a lamb. Didn't say he's the lamb. Says he's lamb what? Like. And sometimes we just skip over uh, things like words like like in the Bible. And like is a real important word there. Real important. Okay? Like. Not the lamb, but like. It's a pet peeve of mine when I see paintings and pictures of Jesus being baptized and there's a dove on his shoulder. No, the Holy Spirit did not descend on him as a dove, it descended on him what? Like a dove, like a dove lands. Where does a a dove come from when he lands? From up there, that's the point of that. The Holy Spirit descended on him from where? From above, coming from the Father. It's a pet peeve of mine to see doves sitting on Jesus' shoulder when he was baptized. Not that it couldn't happen, but that dove was not the Holy Spirit. Okay, I'm done with my pet peeve. But a word like like, especially here, is very important to understand. He isn't the lamb. He looks like him but when it comes down to it, the disguise can be taken off. And when he speaks, he speaks like who? He speaks like the dragon. So the dragon is still giving this beast his power. His power is still coming from nowhere else because again, the authority of the beast, the authority of these two gods that are asking for our worship, the dragon and the lamb that was slain, the authority is in what they speak. In the beginning was the word. And the dragon has a word. The dragon has his own gospel. So on the outside, there's something about this beast that kind of looks like the lamb. But when he opens his mouth, where's the authority coming from? All coming from the dragon. This one's different first and foremost. It doesn't come out of the sea, it comes out of where? It comes out of the earth, it comes out of the land. Why? Well, sea actually is a negative concept in Revelation, sea is. Remember what I told you before what sea means, what, what the, uh, sea and great bodies of water mean in, in prophecy? They mean what? They mean people, okay? They mean people. But sea, like I said, is actually a a concept, okay? Because actually when we get to the new heaven and the new earth, one thing it won't have is what? No seas, which I always thought, man, that's a bummer because I love the ocean, right? He's not talking about the oceans in this. He's talking about a people that would be as overwhelming as the sea. See, the sea where the beast rises up out of See, you have, to, you have to look at it through, an ancient, through ancient eyes, through an ancient mindset, okay? Number one, uh, after all the thousands of years that humans have lived, do you think that they figure out how destructive a force water can be? And, and, and remember, back then, what, what you could and could not do to control water, Right? remember that when the the beast rises up out of the sea it's rising up out of people and and to an ancient mindset you look at an ocean and that is overwhelming power isn't it i might be able to dam a river or a creek i might be able to irrigate and change directions of small bodies of water but the ocean nothing we can do right So what God says will be eliminated in the new heaven and in the new earth is not one group of people that will overwhelmingly force others to be there. There is no more any sea. We're living in a kingdom that finally lives out the rules that we were taught the kingdom of heaven live out. Might does not make right in the kingdom of heaven. The majority isn't always right in the kingdom of heaven. We're gonna live by the love and the governing of the lamb that was slain. So in a way, a, a, a whole ocean full of martyrs would be completely different than this sea that the beast rises out of, a completely different power. So that's why John says, I looked and I didn't see what? No sea. Doesn't mean there won't be any oceans. Doesn't mean there won't be any beaches. This, again, is symbolic. And we have to remember, too, how symbolic a book Revelation really is. And we have to be very, very careful as to what we take literally and what we don't. This is one of them, okay? No seas. No prophetic seas. There'll be oceans, just no seas. The kingdom is not taken by an overwhelming force of people. The kingdom is owned only by the lamb that was slain, and he gives it to the people. So the sea is something to be feared. It's something to be gotten rid of. Earth, on the other hand, is a bit more ambiguous. Those who live on the earth, unfortunately, those who live on the earth in in, in prophecy are almost always seen as negative. When you read uh, uh, chapter 11, verse 10, uh, chapter 13, verse 8, chapter 17, verses 2, 8, and 18, chapter 18, 3, it's all talking about the inhabitants of the earth not worshiping God and being enemies of God. And when it says it, it says inhabitants of the earth. The inhabitants are almost always seen as negative. And since this is in the passage that we're reading, this is one of the passages. And all the inhabitants of the earth, what? Will worship this beast that we're talking about. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life that the lamb was slaughtered, of the lamb that was slaughtered. The earth isn't necessarily negative. It can be a place where people worship the beast, like it says here. All right? But it also can be acted upon by the people. And it will be acted upon positively by the people in in chapter 14. And when we get to the end of this, when we get to the end of exposing both of these beasts for who they are all the way up to present tense, I'm not going to stop there. We have to go to chapter 14, don't we? We have to go to what it is like to be worshiping the lamb in the end time. Because we got a message there, don't we? So the earth can be acted upon and it can be described as positive. The one place where it's described as positive is here. We've already been here. Is that at the beginning or the transition between these two beasts at the beginning, the earth actually comes to aid the woman. The earth came to help the woman. It opened its mouth, swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Remember, all you need to, uh, to escape the damage of a flood is to have enough room to escape it. Right? If you're caught in a gully during a flash flood, that's not good. But if you could get to the place to where it empties out onto the plain, you're going to be all right, right? the room swallows the flood. So here the earth is described as a positive thing. Even the inhabitants maybe are described. At one time, yes, this beast will make the earth worship the first beast, but at least at the beginning, even the earth is used as a positive force to try to open up, to try to give the woman some room try to give her a little more freedom that has been taken away from her in the old world. So as far as we see in history, this positive force as it comes up, just as the the, the reign, if you will, of this first beast at, towards the end of the 1260 years, about 400 years out, at least the history is seen as a positive light. Now, now I've I've, I've gone back, and I don't think that any of these are in as positive and glowing a terms as I was taught before. In other words, we need to say these things with precaution, but for the most part, the Reformation, the Enlightenment, the American Revolution, they were all seen as positives, if you will, that at least bought the woman some time. They weren't perfect. It was very messy but it at least buys the woman some time. By the late 17th century, as I pointed out, there is no religious freedom in the old world. Some room is needed. The earth and the land comes to rescue the woman by giving her a new world. In the midst of all this, this beast is a world power that rises up in this context. On the surface, he seems to be a defender of religious liberty on the surface. So let me ask you, now that we've described it, is there any power that fits the description? So I, I, I don't think, I, I have no problem with the 200-year-old interpretation. This makes a lot of sense that this beast would be bound up, if you will, in our history as Americans our history in North America, especially the United States. Supposedly we were a land founded by persecuted what? By persecuted Christians. We're gonna talk about this, we're gonna talk about it a lot. Like now I just wanted, I need to get back to the beach, I need to look at the words said about the lamb and then we'll do what we've done before and now, then we'll go back. But for, the, for now, for this week and next week, I just wanna spend some time just in the language itself and then we'll begin to look into history and bring us up to present day and maybe speculate a little bit about the future. But for right now, I wanna spend the time on what John says this beast is and what he looks like. So all I'm saying is, for the most part, the narrative fits, doesn't it? It fits our time, it fits supposedly as to why we were founded and how we were founded. The problem is, though, is that that beast is still what? He's still a beast. And in the way he's described here, he's even more effective than the one that came before. And when you consider that the dragon nearly did his job with the one that came before, man, what does this one's resume look like? It has two horns like a what? Like a lamb. Lamb occurs 29 times in the book of Revelation. 28 of those times refers to Jesus. Guess the one time that it doesn't refer to Jesus, it refers to this beast. What is John trying to tell us about this beast? He wants to look exactly like the lamb, he's trying to pull it off. So the one time that it refers to him, he's exactly the opposite. He's lamb-like, but he's the opposite of the lamb. He's the opposite. He's the opposition to Jesus and his people, the true church, if you will. There's something about this beast that reminds one of Jesus. There's a religious tone to this. In fact, sometimes I think that the religious tone is even more, uh, I don't know how to put it, blatant. It's, it's, It's more on the surface even than the first beast. So it has characteristics like the lamb. Its history seems to be a positive history, at least one (laughs) that is perpetuated, at least one that is learned in the mainstream, if you will. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about our history. But we'll acknowledge that the version of this history, most of us, most of us may make it sound lamb-like. There's quite a few people who could argue with us that this isn't lamb-like at all. So could it be that maybe it exercises its power, the same power that the first beast exercises with a gentleness at least that wasn't known before? It's at least more gentle or at least it sounds more gentle than the beast from the sea. Give me your poor, your tired, your huddled masses. And that sounds lamb-like, doesn't it? Until you realize what we were really saying, what we wanted those poor, tired, huddled masses for, right? Well, we'll talk about it. Ellis Island is a myth that over time, anyway. It's persecution will come in two forms. Even though it's lamb-like, it persecutes in two forms. The two horns of power is its two forms. One that doesn't tolerate religion outside its own and then leans to an unhealthy relationship re- with religion on the other way. They're either religious or anti-religious. One contemporary author of religious liberty articles likes using the term, the tyranny of the righteous. Righteous. The worst oppression, if you think about it, the worst oppression throughout history are the ones that arise from religious people. Babylon becomes the the, uh, title of all of that because Babylon was the perfect example. And there will be one study that I want to look at that, that at least to show you what Nebuchadnezzar was doing in Daniel 1. Babylon is not a secular power. Babylon is a religious power. Nebuchadnezzar believed himself to be a god, which is why we have chapter two in Daniel, right? But it's a false power. He claims to to, uh, conquer by religion, Nebuchadnezzar does, but what he really conquered was military power. And he told everybody that he conquered, including Judea, He told Judea, my God beat your God. So that makes me God. Again, Babylon completely encapsulates a religious man's enamoration with political and military power. You with me? Babylon is no separation between church and state. So the worst oppression are done by religious powers all through history. But they're also anti-religious powers. By the way, the anti-religious powers come when the religious powers have already exercised. 1798, the French Revolution was against the church's power using what they were using. 1798, we believe, is the end of of that power because it finally separated the monarchy from the church. Right? And then the enlightenment comes up, which is seen as an anti-religious power. And the reason that they're anti-religious is because the religious had been abusing their power for 1260 years. And the people finally said, you know what? I've had it. And the enlightenment is a backlash against religious teaching, a backlash against what, what the Bible teaches as science, right? So anti-religious powers such as France during the revolution, the Soviet Union at the height of the communistic reign, they're all anti-religious because religion for 1260 years and beyond, apparently all the way to 1917, had been exercising a power that they could not stomach. So this power in the beast from the land begins as one that seems to be friendly towards religions outside our own and is much more benevolent. But when it gets right down to it, he will end up being just the opposite. The US with all her faults has been admired for the openness and freedom we experience, amen have been admired and we should be. In fact, many have pointed out that much of the violence and the crime we experience could actually be thought of as brought about by our own tolerance and the freedom to commit such acts. We do not wish our freedom to be jeopardized. Soviets had much less crime during their time as communists. Overwhelming force can stop what? Overwhelming force can stop crime but you better be ready to lock up everybody. The philosophy of the American government, supposedly, is to protect freedom at all costs, at the risk of some elements of that society abusing the freedom we enjoy. And again, the checks and balances of our laws is to try to keep the abuse down to a minimum. But if you're going to let people be free, we are also free to abuse our freedom, aren't we? That's why this is a different power. Unfortunately, even though it rises out of the earth and she has lamb-like qualities, she also speaks like what? She also speaks like a dragon. And ultimately, he will serve the dragon and the dragon alone. He says, it exercises how much of the authority of the first beast? All of the authority of the first beast on its behalf. It makes the earth and its inhabitants inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound had been healed it exercises all of the authority of the first beast it moves now into the present tense john uses the present tense it replaces the first beast in its dominance the first beast has a time when it's not you know in charge in control persecuting the saints the the first beast was given his time 538 to 1798 and, and, and God said that was it, that's, that's, that's it. Now this second beast rises up in dominance. By the way, the second beast doesn't even need the first beast. In fact, the second beast isn't going to align with the first beast, the second beast is going to create an image of the first beast. In other words, he's gonna take the power of the first beast, give it a new coat of paint, reapply it in the history and the time in which he's living. He doesn't even need the first beast. The first beast introduced the world to a religious and, and, and military uh, political power. The second beast is going to use that same power. Doesn't need the authority of the first beast because the dragon gives the second beast all the authority of the first beast. This is why I don't understand why we still have all eyes on Rome watching what Rome is going to do. When, by the way, we kind of proved the last three weeks or so that Rome really wasn't the beast. Rome does not equal the, beast. Well, remember? I don't, I don't need to go into it again, do I? But this beast doesn't need Rome. He doesn't need anybody. He doesn't need the the Roman Catholic authority from the medieval times from the Middle Ages. Doesn't need the imperialistic Protestant times from the Middle Ages. It doesn't need any of the application in the old world because it has all the power that the dragon gave the first one, gives this one. What he's gonna do is reapply it. And we already know at least one of the coats of paint that he put on it to make it look more lamb-like is to claim that we all have religious freedom. It's a new time, it's a new application, it's a new people, it's a new empire, reapplied. They just give it another coat of paint. And at noon almost done, I might as well say it, the paint is red, white, and blue. The authority that the sea beast had during the middle ages is now exercised on land on its behalf. On its behalf. It's an image and once that image is complete, then this beast is able to make the whole earth worship the first beast and the beast. That's when it'll come together. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of all. By the signs that is allowed to perform on behalf of the beast, it deceives the inhabitants of the earth, telling them to make an image of the beast that had been wounded by the sword, and yet what? And yet lived. These signs are in the present tense. In other words, these signs here are now in the present tense in John's day and applying to the end time. It's no longer future tense. But before the time of actually worshiping the beast itself, that's still in the future. The dragon goes out in 1217 to make war. The essence of that war is performing these signs. These are the signs that the dragon will use from this second beast in order to fight this war that he said he would fight against the woman who gave birth to the child. The church that gave birth to the true gospel of worshiping the lamb that was slain. To get the whole world to worship the sea beast doesn't need to worship the actual or old application of the power. Like I said, it's a new application, it's a new uh, reapplying of this power. The power is old, it goes all the way back to Nebuchadnezzar. And it rained on this planet ever since then. Never more so than 538 to 1798. The second beast though is talking about the reapplication of that power. Where? Not in the sea anymore, on the land. And in the land in which it was founded. Right here. The greatest of the signs is fire coming down from where? From heaven. When you think of fire from heaven, There are two Bible events that you should be thinking of. What are they? Carmel, and what's the other one? One we don't think of too often. Fire coming down from heaven. No, now you're getting way ahead of us. Pentecost. There's a time when fire came down from heaven, right? And what makes those two signs alike, both cases, it was a challenge of authority. It was a challenge of God's authority that was answered by God himself. And God chose in these two cases to answer it by what? By fire. The gospel that the apostles begin to speak of from the upper room on out is challenged. The reason they were hiding in the upper room is because they were feared that they were going to be arrested. They were already being persecuted. So that word, that gospel that they had was being challenged. God answers that challenge with what? Fire comes down out of heaven. A great mighty rushing wind, which is the application of the Holy Spirit, fire, they looked at each other, there were tongues of fire on everyone's head, and when they left that room, they knocked down any earthly barriers that the gospel had at that moment, and they were speaking in everyone's dialect and language, and the very first time that they go out uh, with the power now of that fire, they baptize 3,000 after about a two-minute sermon. On Carmel, the authority of the true God and his prophet Elijah was challenged by the worshipers and the priests of what? Of Baal. Again, two different gods vying for worship. Worship. Elijah got them to build an altar each of them to build an altar and he said we'll let God decide who is the true God and what happened fire came down consumed all of Elijah's sacrifice consumed all of the water that Elijah poured around it in both cases God speaks his true power through fire and in both cases fire comes down to demonstrate his reign do you realize how scary this is then right here this beast can actually bring that fire down from heaven. And this time with the whole world watching and with you and I trying to prove one way or another, this time it comes down on the wrong altar and there's nothing we can do about it. Can you imagine if the beast had been alive in Elijah's time and he's able to bring the fire down first onto the altar of Baal? That's exactly what John says is gonna happen here. You ask me a sign like that and us standing in the open and that happens, ask me how easy or how hard or how easy it might be to still worship the lamb that was slain. And by the way, maybe it would be easier if the beast would just do that, right? If the beast would just bring fire down from heaven, but we know that that's not what this means, right? It's the power. The fire from heaven is the, is the sign. It's, it's describing what this power will do. You with me? It might be easy, it might be easy. All, all we'd have to do is say, you know what? We know what's gonna happen. Fire's gonna come down on the altar of Baal, okay? So, so we're good, right? It would be easier if it actually was fire down from heaven, but it isn't. It's this power. It's what the dragon gives this power to do. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could even speak and cause those, okay, who would worship the image of the beast. It would cause it. The concentration with this beast is spiritual activity. So even the positive spiritual past will now be used to deceive. It'll be used to bring that sign about. And the dragon giving breath to the beast, what does that sound like? Who does he sound like? Who does he want to sound like? But all we know is that in the land where this beast is reigning, that the, the, that the spiritual past is used to deceive, the spiritual side of this beast will now become as much the power side of the beast as anything is that we have. The spiritual side of the beast will be as second nature to us as our armies, our weapons, and the FBI. The final crisis brings a lot of powers into play, but it centers on this. It centers on the spiritual aspect. Listen to the language that the beast is. Doesn't this sound like somebody? He's allowed to give breath to the image of the beast that the image of the beast could even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. What does he sound like? Who does he sound like? Back in John 20, when Jesus was resurrected and he came to the disciples the first time, he wanted to make sure that they knew that the Father had kept his promise, that he was going away and the Father said that I won't leave you as orphans. When I go away, the Father will give you the what? He'll give you the Holy Spirit. When he came back, he wanted to make sure his disciples knew that the Father kept his promise. So it says, he breathed on them and said what? Receive the Holy Spirit. When he described it earlier, when he was still on earth, he says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify, he'll speak, he'll have words, but it'll be about who? Jesus said it'll be about me. But when the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all the truth. He'll not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. What is the spirit to God's creation? It's our life. It's our animating life force. In the beginning, he created our bodies out of carbon, out of the dust of the ground. But but if he had done nothing after that, we would not be here, would we? He created our bodies out of the dust of the ground and then he actually picked them up and he breathed into him his Holy Spirit. His Spirit is our life. It's creation's life. It's our animating life force. Now do you hear the language of the dragon? He gives what? He gives breath to the beast. He is the life force of the beast. No matter what body or what time or what country or what nation or what empire he happens to be acting in, It's his spirit. And I think, again, I think that that's what makes this so frightening, is that this beast is even more effective, because this beast is the false part of the Trinity that involves the Holy Spirit. In a lot of ways, this is the true life of the dragon. This is the true image of the dragon himself. He'll use the spiritual side more, the religious side more in this one, rather than as the first beast may have used the military side more, the earth's power more, the human power, if you will. So that first beast spent 1260 years trying to convince the world that he was the son. This beast comes along and will spend the rest of its history trying to convince the world That he's the Holy Spirit. Either way, it's back to fear, force, and coercion. Right? Either way, it all comes back to where? It all comes back to this. That even the sophistication of the deception... of of convincing people of the religious part of this. I'm so religious, look at me, I'm so lamb-like, look at me, you need my worship. He still can't let go of the power of the enticement of the seduction to make people worship him. And hence the power continues to live. It's back to that. He will cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. The second beast has no trouble co-opting the first beast's power and doing with whatever the first beast power, whatever deception, whatever coat of paint he wants to paint on it, whatever it takes, he's going to use it to be able to try to convince the world to worship him. So what's interesting is that the Christians of each era, no matter where they were, the middle ages, the end of the middle ages, the reformation, the enlightenment, whatever, They have no trouble wearing the tyranny, wearing the robe or the crown of tyranny when it suits them, right? Because what's the only thing that changes from the worshipers of the first beast to the worshipers of the second beast? What's the only thing that changes? Is the empire or the coat of paint that the power happens to be. Everyone who's living in that era, worshiping them, they all believe themselves to be what? They all believe themselves to be right. And they all hold one standard of truth. What is it, Pat? They claim to believe that they believe in God's word. So we can pounce on and denounce and pick on History's tyranny, all we want, and look at those people and say, and say that they were false believers and put down their, their religious conviction and everything else and, and, and we're just like anyone else, is that when that happens, when we do that, when that happens, we'll buy into the same tyranny as long as it's our tyranny. As long as it's our truth. And we'll pat ourselves on the back by saying, well, it's a little more gentle than they were. Right? That's where we are. Um, How many of you are as scared as I am to go on? (laughs) I'm scared because I know I'm stepping on toes. I'm stepping on my own toes. I'm stepping on a lot of toes. Because this is who? This is us. And we each have have to, to look at what we believe and how we practice it and what we teach each other what we believe. About our church, about our nation. All I know, all I know is that at least in the past four years, it's become a whole lot harder, if you will, right? A whole lot harder to truly even understand what it means to be worshiping the lamb that was slain as opposed to worshiping this beast. And as a preacher of the gospel, it's been a lot harder to preach it to. I think it's been a lot harder for us to believe it. I think it's a lot harder for us to be convicted, to hear it. So it isn't easy. I'll find out how not easy it is this week. I need to check my cholesterol again. It hasn't been easy to talk about. So I know probably it's not easy to listen to. I'll leave, you, I'll leave you with just one story that actually happened in my ministry and maybe to get us to begin to think, to open up the door that maybe we could look at our history, look at ourselves as critically as the scripture, as the prophecy would have us do, okay? And it goes back to that, that place that I, that I told you. I, I, uh, we, my first church was a church in the, in the Redwoods crazy, wild place called Southern Humboldt County, a place where anything could happen and everything did happen. Nellie labeled it Planet Redwood. Uh, we were there for three years. There wasn't anything that happened on any particular day where I, where I said, you know what? I've never ever seen that before in my life. I've never heard that before in my life. It's a crazy place. Hippies and rednecks and marijuana and, and fundamentalist churches anyway, the high school in Southern Humboldt County, Southern Humboldt High School, which by the way was only a stone's throw. Well, maybe you'd have to have a real good arm. You'd have to have Roberto Clemente arm to hit the, ch- but our church was just a, a baseball throw away from this high school. The high school began teaching a course in tarot card reading. Welcome to Humboldt County, okay? <laughs> began teaching a course in tarot card reading. Because that's actually a profession in Humboldt County. I I could not count the number of psychics that had businesses in Humboldt County. They all had thriving businesses, okay? That's just the, the way they were. So they thought they were preparing some kids for a life, which in Humboldt County, it was a life. Well, guess who panicked? Every one of those fundamentalist churches I told you about. And I got the invitation because I claimed to be a Christian. <laughs> so I get the invitation and we all gather at this, at, the, at this one church and everyone's hitting the panic button. Do you know what their solution was? Do you know what they were going, going to, to go, excuse me, to go back to the school board to do? You know what their solution was? Was that if you're gonna teach a course in tarot card reading, we're gonna teach a course in Bible study. That's their solution. And I was the only one that said, no, <laughs> no. I wish I would have said it out loud, but I had no influence then. I couldn't even say that any of those people were my friends and that was my fault, okay? I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm a good Adventist. I kept to myself in that first church. <laughs> I'm a good Adventist. I didn't, I didn't mingle, right? You know, I mean, that's what we do, right? And I got to think about it over the past 30 years. I got to think about it saying, wait a minute, hold on. Tarot card reading is a religious practice, isn't it? It's a different different view of what spirit you may be worshiping or what spirit you might be getting in touch with, but it's a religious practice. I objected to the tarot card reading not because it was inherently evil or defined as evil by the Christians in in that county, okay? I objected to it because it's a religious practice. And it had no business in public school any more than Bible study has in public school because Bible study is a religious practice. And that school is a public school. That school has a law, is enforcing a law mandated in the state of California that every child attend at least until ninth grade. It's been changed to seventh grade since. So when the government says you have to attend school and you're going to teach religion in that school, what happened to the First Amendment? The Christians in that audience were saying, I don't want my tax dollars going to tarot card reading. I want my tax dollars going to Bible study. Well, the problem with tax dollars is that those tax dollars are coming from Muslim parents, are coming from Buddhists, are coming from Hindu. And by the way, in Humboldt County, they're coming from a whole bunch of people who believe in tarot card reading. Neither practice belonged there. And it was my first introduction to something. It was my very first introduction into this, and that is, I'm, I'm okay, I guess, I'm okay if I'm going to take a stand in a particular way of looking at our, fa- at our freedoms, First Amendment and on, of our particular freedoms, especially our freedom of religion. I'm okay that some of my challenges to that, some people might call me un-American. I've, I've got no problem with that. We're both Americans, we can debate that, right? on how good of Americans we are, we can debate that. My problem is, is in that room, taking a stand that I took, I now was no longer Christian. Their idea of America involved being able to teach Christianity in a public school. And that was my first introduction to it. My proposal was, yeah, Let's teach any student who wants to learn. You didn't have to take tarot card reading. It was an option. And that was the reason why the school board approved it. It was an option. So they said, well, let's make Bible study an option. And I said, yes, let's do it. But don't do it on those grounds. Don't do it in that building. My tax dollars pay for that. My church is four blocks away. Bring the kids up to my church. And I wasn't even insisting on teaching it. They could. Because they weren't going to let an Adventist teach it. I don't have a problem if you want to argue with me about how good of an American I am. But if you don't think that I'm a good Christian because I'm not a good American, now we might see how seductive this beast's power really is. All right? So we'll talk more about this. I know it's hard. Thank you for staying on the ride with me. We got a long way to go. But remember what Paul told the church even in the midst of the lawless one, that our Lord Jesus Christ is here and he's with us and he especially will not abandon us during this time. All right? Thank you again. Happy Sabbath, everybody.